If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we continue our study there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are looking at verses 2 through 16 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. You know, in our culture today, there is a, a big push to get rid of all gender distinctions. So now this started with the, the feminist movement years back. Uh, of course, with all movements, uh, there was some, some basis for the feminist movement. Uh, there were some inequalities in women's rights that needed to be addressed. You know, women are, are, are equal with men. They are valued just as men are valued. They should have the same human rights as men have, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There should be the, the right to vote. There were a lot of rights that were won through the feminist movement that were right and good. But now the problem with the feminist movement, as is with a lot of the movements that take place, uh, often when the ball gets rolling, they don't know when to stop. And, and they end up going out of bounds. And, and that's what's happened in the women's movement, the feminist movement, it has gone to the point now where there's this desire to not just win rights for women, not just to make sure that women are treated equally, but there's a push to erase all gender distinctions. Even to the point now there's a big push to, to get rid of all even gender pronouns. Now, I don't know how that's going to work. Right? They're going to have to rewrite language to get rid of gender pronouns, but that's the point that we, that's the point at which we, we find ourselves today. There's this push to erase all distinctions between men and women. And we even see it with our public restrooms. They want to pull down that distinction. There's no longer a men's room and a women's restroom. Uh, it's just a restroom, right? And, and so there's this desire to, to take away all gender distinctions but I want us to see today and scripture tells us it's very clear about this that Christians must maintain gender distinctives as followers of Jesus Christ as children of God we as Christians we must maintain gen gender distinctives we can't fall along with the, the culture of our world in erasing gender distinctives and so that's what we see in our text today. Paul is addressing gender distinctives. This is not just a, a new issue for our century. Right? It, it was taking place even in Paul's day. There was a push to, to kind of get rid of these gender distinctives. There was a, a feminist movement in Corinth and in the Roman Empire that were trying to remove some gender distinctives. And Paul's having to speak to that issue. So today... As we look at our text, we're going to see three reasons why we as Christians must maintain gender distinctives. And I hope that through today's text, we will, we will, it will keep us from going along with culture and their efforts to destroy the beauty of God's creation in creating male and female, those gender distinctives. Now, Paul, as we've been following along here through this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul is, is at this point, he's shifting a little bit in his, his discussion here. He's been talking about uh, idolatry, but now he's shifting that to some issues of worship. Uh, he's addressing some issues that are taking place in corporate worship within the church. So he's still dealing with worship. It was worshiping of idols and getting tied up in idolatry. Now he, he's drawing that down to the local church and the worship of the local church. And in this first, first little uh, paragraph here, this first text that we look at, he's dealing with this idea of head coverings. Now we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but he's dealing with head coverings. Next he'll address issues with the observance of the Lord's Supper. And then finally, we'll get into some abuses of spiritual gifts. But first, he's starting with this issue of head coverings. Now, this text, this paragraph, is a tough paragraph.
paragraph. Uh, I'm just going to start off with that. It is a hard paragraph. It's, it's one of the hardest texts, not only in 1 Corinthians, to, to translate and to kind of wrestle with, but it's one of the hardest texts in all of Scripture. And, and there's a few reasons for that. One reason is that Paul is dealing with some cultural issues here that are somewhat lost to us. We don't deal with head coverings these days. Uh, but that was a cultural issue that Paul had to speak to. And so we're kind of struggling trying to figure out, now what's he talking about? What were these head coverings? What was the purpose of these head coverings? And so we're having to struggle with that. There's also an issue there that we're just not clear on. Paul kind of alludes to some things, and, and certainly the church that he's writing this to, they understand it, they know what's going on, but we're kind of left in the dark about some of these things. So we're just having to kind of guess on some of the cultural issues there, some of the specific issues that the church is struggling with. But I think as we look at it, as we look at uh, what Paul is saying here and, and look at the flow of his argument, I think we can come to an understanding at least of the general principle that he's trying to, to get across to us. And that has to do with, like I said, this issue of gender distinctives. So if you found your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I command you because you remember, I commend you, excuse me, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven." For if, I, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. But this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, when, nevertheless, in the Lord, Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practices, nor do the churches of God. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. Now, as we read that, you understand the difficulty of this text. It's dealing with some issues that are, are quite strange to us, some cultural issues that are quite strange to us. But I want us to try to, to understand what Paul is getting at. Some of these cultural issues, maybe we can work them out and get a grasp of the principles that he is he's presenting to us. The main thing here is those gender distinctives, maintaining those gender distinctives within the church 
and within the community of God. So Christians must maintain gender distinctness, first of all, because of God's glory. Because of God's glory. Now, let's look at our text and, and see this. Look how he starts out. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So uh, they're doing some good things. You know, Paul's appealing to what they're, the positive first, right? He, he's, you're doing some things right. I, I delivered to you some traditions, uh, how we should conduct ourselves in worship, and, and you're doing some things right, but that should be a clue here. He's fixing to kind of hit them uh, on the other side, right? But there are some things going on that you're just kind of missing the mark on that I need to address here. And so we get to verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Now, let's think about that. Now, what's he talking about here? Paul is, he uses this, this term head several times throughout this passage. And what's he talking about, this head? The head of every man is Christ. Well, here again, we have a cultural issue that is somewhat strange to us. Paul is, is dealing with a covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship. And in a covenant, and we've talked about covenants here before, but in a covenant, there is a covenant head, and, and then there are those who are submissive to the head. Right? And, and so you have these two different individuals within a covenant. And that's what Paul is looking at here. The head of every man is Christ. Now, what is he talking about here? The head of every man is Christ. Well, Paul could be meaning that Christ is the head. He is sovereign over all of mankind. And that would be true. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 uh, for God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so it is, is right that Jesus is the head of all creation as Christ, as the Messiah. He is God's king over all of creation so he is the head of all of creation I, I think though paul here is kind of focusing in a little bit tighter though he one thing he is writing to a church he is writing to a local church and so when he writes to this local church using this kind of covenant uh verbiage uh, they kind of draw into this so that when we say that Christ the head of every man is Christ we have an image of Christ being the head of the church he is the church's covenantal head God entered into a covenant with Christ God the Father entered into a covenant with Christ and Christ came as our representative as our covenant head as our covenant head, he represents the church. So he went to Calvary's cross representing the church. He, in fact, lived his life representing the church, living in complete obedience to the will of God the Father, representing his bride, the church. He went to Calvary's cross, and he died on Calvary's cross representing his bride, the church. He is the church's covenantal head. And so we, as a church, when we come to faith in Christ, we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we are confessing that we are coming under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now, under the covenant of creation, we were under the headship of Adam. And Adam, he went to the garden and he failed to keep uh, remain in obedience to God's will and so because of his failure to obey God we were brought into sin under his headship but now in Christ as we come under his headship under the new covenant in which he is the head of that covenant 
we are under his umbrella of righteousness. And so when God looks down at Christ, our head, he sees righteousness. We are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we are under his headship as head of that covenant. So Christ is the head of every man, that is every person, in the church. He is the head of the church. He is our leader. He is our sovereign. He is our ruler. He lovingly died for us. He gave himself up for us. And so now we submit to his leadership and we come under him as our, he, as our Lord. So Christ is the head of every man. And then he says the head of a wife is her husband. Again, Paul is getting into this covenant relationship. We don't understand that because in America, marriage, that covenant, that sense of covenant has kind of been pushed out the door. And marriage in America is more understood like a contract. So you do this, 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 and I'll do this, 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 and this. And if we break this covenant, then, or if we break this contract, then we can go our separate ways. We don't have this understanding of a covenant. But from the beginning, it was not so. God created marriage to be a, a covenantal union between a man and a woman. And in that union, there's a head, and there's one who submits to the authority of that head. God created man to be the head of the covenant. He is the representative for his family. That's why we, we refer to the man as the head of the household. That just doesn't mean that he's the boss, right? He is the head of the household. He is the leader. He is to lead his family in the ways of Christ. He is to lead them, and he represents them. Husbands, I want you to understand, as the head of the household, you represent your household before God. You represent your household before God. You're the head of the household. There's a lot of weight on your shoulders. And you need to take that weight seriously. You need to lead your family faithfully. Not just letting them go to here and fro, whatever they want to do, but, but you need to lead them, uh, bring them to church. Make sure they're, they're, they're growing in their relationship with Christ. Disciple them. Help them so that they can draw, draw closer to the Lord. If you fail to do that, you fail before Christ. You fail before God. That's on your shoulders. Husband, that's a huge responsibility. And I pray you take it seriously. The head of every wife is the husband. You're the covenantal head of that relationship now i want us to understand because in our culture that's a we don't talk that way right that that's putting women down that, that that's like setting them aside as second class citizens no 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 we can't do that god doesn't do that men and women both were created in the image and likeness of god men and women are equal in dignity but god has set this up so that men are head of the household that's the way he created things and women are to follow now we see this in every organization don't we someone's got to lead if you have a business and just kind of all the employees kind of show up when they want to show up and do what they want to do when they get there then what what's going to happen to that business it's going to flop it's going to go nowhere someone has to say hey we're, we're going to work from eight to five and we're going to take an hour for lunch. And, and, and this is our goal. This is our mission. This is what we're going to do. And, and, and here's, here's how we're going to accomplish our mission. Someone has to lead. We know that. There's always got to be a, a leader. And so it is in the family. There has to be a leader. And the way God has created things, that leader is the husband. He is the head of the household, the leader of the family. That doesn't mean that he... Uh, kind of becomes like this dictator, you know, heavy hand leadership. No, no, no. 
In fact, God shows us that. Paul shows us that. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So there's that idea of submitting to the covenant head, submitting to his leadership. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, to their leadership. But now, husbands, watch this. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way, husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies. Let me tell you, husbands, if you lead your wife in that way, your wife will lovingly and willingly follow your leadership because you're looking out for their best interest. You're putting their interest above your own. You're wanting to, to see them grow and develop and, and flourish. Not leading them in selfishness, but leading them out of love in Christ. And so the husband is to be the head of the wife. To have that place of responsibility and leadership in the family. Now if you think that is some kind of uh, derogative kind of uh, mentality for women, look, what he, look how Paul goes on here. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Now, God here is used, Paul's using this in a sense of God the Father. So when we talked about covenants on Sunday nights a while back, we talked about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the covenant that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we see this kind of, alluded to in scripture they entered into this covenant to save man a, a people for themselves before they ever created anything they knew as they created that adam would fall they knew all of this was going to happen they knew we would be here where we are today they knew all of this and they covenanted together to save a people for themselves in that covenant god the father is the head of that covenant he is the head of Christ. He is the one that makes decisions. He's the one that leads in this. And Christ willingly submits to the headship of the Father. He comes under the Father, Father's leadership. And so when we get to his, his incarnation, he is obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, because he's following the leadership, the headship of the Father. The Son submits to the headship of God the Father. He doesn't do it because God the Father has a heavy hand and, and, and you know, subordinates him, like pushes him down. No, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all equal in essence. They're all God. They're made of the same substance. They are equal in dignity. They are equal in essence. They are all God. Just different persons in the one God. But you see, Jesus knows that the Father loves him and wants only what is best and good for the Son. So the, the Son willingly submits to the Father's leadership because the Father's got my interest at heart. He, he's only going to do what's good and right for me. Even sending Christ to the cross was what was good and right for Jesus because it was in the cross that He won the victory and became Christ over God's kingdom. And so the head of Christ is the Father. 
And the Father leads. And the, the Son and, and the Holy Spirit, He gets in there too. And the Holy Spirit, they, they submit to the Father's leadership. And this is the image that we have even in the Trinity that falls down, comes down, rolls down on that relationship between a husband and a wife. There's the head of the household who represents his family before God. And there's the wife who lovingly and willingly submits to his leadership because he is leading out of love for her, looking out for her best interest, her greatest good. Though, as humans, it's imperfect, yet we try the best that we can, or we should be. And so we have this, this theological principle that Paul sets out first and foremost. The head of every man is Christ. The head of, of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So we have this covenantal relationship hanging over here. And this idea of headship and, and functional submission to that headship. Then as we move on, Paul gets into another little cultural issue here. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered uh, dishonors his head. Now, what is he talking about, this, this, this covering his head? Well, we, we don't really know, and there's a lot of debate. I read a lot of commentaries on this trying to figure this out, but there's a lot of debate on, on what this head covering really was. Was it actual some kind of a shawl that, that women typically wore over their heads? Was it a, the way they wore their hair? What was it? And, and there's really no good answer. I, I think most likely it was some kind of a head covering, some kind of shawl that the ladies of that day, it was a cultural norm for ladies who were morally upright and, and, and who were you know, good in their culture, uh, respectable within the culture, they, they covered their heads. They wore this head covering. Now, this cultural thing is passed away. It's not relevant for us, but the idea behind it is still relevant for us because in this head covering, it, this head covering had something to do. It was a symbol of authority over the woman. That's why he says on down there in verse 10 that, it, that this... Uh, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So it was a way for a wife to symbolize that she was under the authority of her head, her husband. That she was submitting to his leadership over her life. She was following God's way of, of you know, leading the family. And so we have this idea now for a man to cover his head that was dishonorable, right? Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his wife. That's not, don't do that. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her head or to shave her head, let her cover her head. And so within all of this, there's another little cultural issue, right? There's a lot of cultural issues that, that we're kind of blind to in this text. So you have the idea of covenant. You have this idea of head covering. But now you have this idea of honor and shame. Honor and shame. It's a disgrace, right? It's a disgrace for a woman to shave her head or to cut her hair short. It's an honor if she covers her head, right? So there's this idea of shame and honor. And maybe you've heard of the kind of the, of the honor-shame societies. It's not, relevant, it's not uh, prevalent here in the United States. In fact, in the United States here in the West, we kind, of, uh, we, we kind of live by this idea of guilt or innocence, right? We're individualistic, and, and so either a person is guilty or they're innocent, and it's all on the one person. But in a honor-shame society, it's very communal. It's very communal. 
And, and so you get your identity, your sense of worth from the community as a whole. And there's a leader in every community. In the family unit, the head of the household is the leader. So the head of the household is the one who gets glory or shame from how his family acts and does. And then it graduates on up there to the head of the community. If you're living in a city, city if you're a member of that community, you don't want to bring shame to your community. You don't want to bring shame to your king. So you, you want to do things that are, are considered honorable so that you not bring shame to your head. Well, we see that same kind of mentality going on here. In fact, you see this idea of honor-shame, this honor-shame culture throughout Scripture. And we would do well to kind of get a grasp of this, this idea, this kind of cultural distinctive of honor and shame. When you go to um, Psalms, Psalms chapter 51, David there, he is lamenting his sin that he had committed with Bathsheba. He had committed a sin with Bathsheba. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He got her pregnant. And then on top of that, he, he took Uriah, her husband, and, and sent him out to battle, put him at the head of the battle. And then when the battle got heated, he, he had the men withdrawn. And so in other words, he basically had Uriah murdered in battle. And so David sinned greatly. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. Yet when he comes to repent of his sin, he says, O oh Lord my God, to you, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now in our Western mind, we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, no. He sinned first against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against all of these people. It wasn't just God. But you see, when you think in the mindset of honor, shame, David, as God's king over God's people, he sinned against God because he dishonored God. He brought shame to the name of God before his enemies. And so David says, against you and you only, I brought shame to your name. How could I do that? I dishonored you, my God. How could I do that? And so it is in the family unit. That when a, a wife dishonors her husband, instead of submitting to his headship, instead of recognizing his headship, whatever that looks like in our culture, not, not head covering, but however that translates in our culture, when a wife abandons that, that gender role that, that has been given to her by God, and dishonors her husband, she brings shame to her husband, but ultimately she brings shame to her God. Because while the husband may be the head of the household, God is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And so I want you to see, when we abandon gender roles, when husbands don't act like husbands, when husbands fail to be the, the leader, the head of their household, to represent their family, to lead their family in the ways of Christ, when wives fail to submit to their husbands and, and to help their husbands in their leadership, when they fail to do that, they dishonor Christ. And they bring shame to his name. And that's what Paul is getting at. We need to glorify God. We need to glorify God by maintaining these gender distinctives. Women need to be women and men need to be men and husbands need to, you, you need to do your task, your God-given task as a husband. Wives, you need to do your God-given task as wives 
for the glory of God. You remember last week, Paul said, whether you, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, the most mundane things, give glory to God. Do it all for the glory of God. Husbands, you're hus- you, you be husbands. You be you, your God-created do your God-created role as a husband to the glory of God. Wives, do your God-given role as wives to the glory of God. We do it all for the glory of God. Not bringing shame to His name, but glorifying His name. So we glorify God by maintaining these cultural distinctives. And this is the first and foremost. I mean, this is the main thing that we need to see here. Our main thing in all of this is to honor and glorify God in everything that we do, even in maintaining these gender distinctives. We don't maintain gender distinctives for the sake of salvation. No man is saved by his masculinity. No woman is saved by her femininity. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But because we are in Christ, because we know the love of Christ, we should want to honor Christ and glorify Christ with our lives. Therefore, because he has saved us, then we maintain these gender distinctives. We don't get involved in the the cultural uh, efforts to erase gender distinctives, but husbands are husbands and wives are wives, as God has created us to be. So we maintain gender distinctives for, the glory, for God's glory. Second, we maintain gender distinctives because of God's created order. We maintain gender distinctives because of God's created order. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. He's, he's pointing back to Genesis chapter 1. The man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now notice he didn't say that woman is the image and glory of man because woman and man, both man and women, are created in the image and likeness of God. But again, he's getting at that, 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 that honor-shame kind of cultural mentality that we were just talking about here. So he's already pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Right? So the man, Adam, was the first to be created. God formed him up out of the the dust. But then God created him a helpmate. And he took from Adam the rib so that he created Eve. So man, woman was created, made from man. So man is now born, oh, excuse me, uh, lost my place. Neither, neither was man created for women, but woman for man. Okay, so you go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and uh, read the creation count where God created mankind. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. So before this, Adam had had gone through and he named all the animals on the earth that God had created. And as he named all the animals, he he didn't find a helper, a mate, a companion who was fit for him. There was something missing. He wasn't complete. He needed a helper who was fit for him, who was a a good companion for him. So out of Adam, then God created Eve as a helpmate. As a helpmate. This was all part of God's created order. He created Adam, and then he created Eve as a helpmate for Adam. Adam couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't fulfill his God-given mission to have dominion and fill the earth on his own. He needed a helpmate fit for him, someone who completed him. And so God created woman. This is part of God's created order. 
He created man and woman to, to join together in a complementary nature. They are equal in dignity, right? They're equal in dignity. They, they're both created in the image and likeness of God. They're both uh, of the same worth and value, absolutely. But they're functionally different. Eve was different from Adam in several ways. He was different. They were functionally different. And because God created them functionally different, He created them that way because they had functionally different roles within the relationship. And instead of erasing those functional differences, we need to celebrate those functional differences. God created man and woman to, to be complementary to one another, to complement one another. I tell people all the time, Mary Beth's my better half because she compliments me. We're different. We're absolutely different in more ways than just physical ways. We're, we're different. And I wouldn't be the man I am today without her because she compliments me, and I, I pray I compliment her. So we're, we're created to be in this complementary relationship with one another. We're, we're to have complementary roles in that relationship, as we've already talked about. The man is to be the, the functional head in that relationship, to, to represent the family, to lead the family. And the wife is to come alongside him and help him in that function. To help him uh, fulfill his role before God. There's complementary nature, there's complementary roles, but, but notice that they're equal in essence. Paul doesn't leave this undone. He, he, verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so, now, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So men and women are equal. They're, they're equal in dignity, equal in value. Women, this is not a, a, a put down on you in any way, though our culture will tell you it is. But this is God's created order. This is God's created order. This is His intention for that man, husband and wife, man and woman relationship. And so the woman is to submit to the authority, the headship of her husband, and I do want to cover this because I don't want to leave you hanging here. He says there, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Another difficult point in this text. What is Paul talking about because of the angels? Uh, there's a lot of discussion about that. I think it's because the angels are here among us. And as they submit to God's will, as there's his submissive uh, Agents worshiping among us as we glorify God by maintaining these gender distinctives in our worship, in our homes, as we maintain them, the angels rejoice and celebrate. So we glorify God, we glorify Him by, by maintaining those gender distinctives, by maintaining his created order. This is the way he created things. And when we rebel against God's created order, that is one of the most ultimate signs of rebellion. God, we don't like how you made things. We're going to do it our way. We're going to recreate things in our own image, and our own likeness. Think about it like this. If Gabby, Gabby likes to paint a little bit, so if Gabby painted me a picture right she created it and she gave it to me as a father's day gift i just thought of you when i when i painted this and i wanted to give it to you now what if then she came in one day and i had that that painting sitting on the coffee table and using it as a coaster how insulting would that be Yet that is what our culture is doing to God's creation. We don't like the way you created things. We don't like the way you ordered things. So we're going to redo it in our own image, in our own likeness, the way we want to do it. We're going to do away with all these gender roles. Forget men and women. We're just going to be blah. Ultimate rebellion. 
We glorify God, we honor God when we respect his created order. And we follow his leadership in that. So we maintain gender distinctives because of God's glory, because of God's created order. Third and finally, and I'm going to hurry here, we maintain gender distinctives because of common sense. Because of common sense. And this is what Paul is getting to in, in 13 through the end there, 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to her, uh, pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears uh, long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, uh, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be uh, contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, Paul, when he's talking about this, men wearing their hair short and, and women wearing their hair long, he is not giving a commandment. Thou shalt have short hair, men. Uh, that's not what he's doing here. He's speaking in generalities. Even in the Jewish culture, there were cases where men wore their hair long. Paul himself had, had given to a Nazarite vow, had taken a Nazarite vow, and in a Nazarite vow, the man just lets his hair go for a while, for an ex, a, a specific period of time. And, and then he would cut it off and offer it up as a sacrifice, showing that he had completed his vow. So there was this Nazarite vow. There were Nazarites within the, the Jewish community. Samson, God commanded Samson to be a Nazarite from birth. And so he had long hair. He never cut his hair from the time he was born. He never cut his hair until Delilah gave him a haircut, right? And so he had long hair. So Paul's not talking necessarily about long hair, short hair. He's talking more about style. But, and this is more about generalities. Even in our culture, 2,000 years later, we still have this same kind of mentality. In general, generally speaking, men typically have short hair. Women typically have longer hair. And at the very least, even if you, you, a woman does have shorter hair or a man has longer hair, they wear it different. They style it different, right? There's a distinction. There's a cultural, natural distinction between the way men wear their hair and women wear their hair, generally speaking. And so Paul's saying, it's common sense. Our natural way of approaching life, it tells us that men are different from women, that the two sexes are different. There's distinctives between the two. It's a natural phenomenon that we cannot deny common sense. Yet in this effort to erase Gender distinctives, those, that common sense has been pushed out the door. For example, you take a man now who identifies as a woman who is mediocre as a, a competitive athlete you know, competing with men, but now he can identify as a woman, erase that gender distinctive, he can identify as a woman and blow out the competition. He can go compete against women and just blow them out. And the feminists are starting to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think we pushed too far. You think? Uh, their common sense tells us that there is a difference between men and women. God created us differently. Men have hormones that are different from women that make us stronger and typically faster than women. There's a difference. Women do things different than men do things. There's a difference. So common sense tells us that men and women are distinct. And we should be distinct. We should enjoy those distinctions and not try to erase them. So instead of trying to erase gender distinctives as a culture, as our culture is trying to do, we need to be counter-cultural. We need to celebrate gender distinctives. We need to celebrate gender distinctives. 
I mean, think about it. If we erase gender distinctives, everybody is the same. How boring is that? You know, you throw a steak out on the grill and don't put anything on it, and it's kind of blah. But now you throw in some different spices on top of that thing, and, and you add in some good old side dishes, man, it's good. God created us to be different, to bring spice to this world, to add a, a season of flavor. So we should celebrate our differences. Men, celebrate your masculinity. Don't be ashamed of it as our culture tells us you should be. Be a man. Be a man. Lead your family like a man. Honor your family like a man. Care for your family like a godly man, like Christ leads and guides the church. Love your family like Christ loved the church. Be a man. And women, celebrate your femininity. Don't be ashamed to be a woman. Don't be ashamed to be a woman. Be a woman. Celebrate being a woman. And all of that has to, to include. Be a woman. Let us honor and glorify God, not only by maintaining these gender distinctives, but by celebrating them as God's gift to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you, in your wisdom, Lord, you created us male and female. And Lord, even in that relationship of man and woman, in that dual relationship, Lord, we reflect your image and your glory. So, Father, even while the world tries to erase those distinctives, let us, as your church, honor and glorify you through those distinctives. And, Lord, I just pray for men today, as the heads of their households, the husbands, Lord, I pray that they would be men. That they would fulfill the role that you have given them to be loving leaders in their families. To give themselves, to, to lead their wives, to love their wives and lead them in their relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for women. Lord, that they would embrace the, 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 the call on their lives as wives, as women, embrace that and live that and lovingly submitting to the leadership of their husbands as they lead them in your ways. And Lord, help us and forgive us in every way that we fall short. Surely we do. And we thank you, Lord, that even in our shortcomings, even when we fail you, Lord, we are covered as followers of Jesus Christ. We are covered under his headship. And we honor and glorify you through his name. So, Lord, it's through his name we pray today. Amen.